Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo, CEO of the Cancer Support Community. For more than 35 years, we at the Cancer Support Community have been a relentless ally for anyone impacted by cancer. We help individuals manage the realities of this disruptive disease and get back to normal, whether accessing our free services in person or at one of our 175 locations or online or through our toll-free helpline, you're getting a team of licensed professionals providing patient navigation, financial counseling, genetic counseling, pediatric support, and more. We are excited about our show today. Uh, The University of Missouri System recently launched their next-gen Precision Health Institute. At the groundbreaking ceremony, U.S. Senator Roy Blunt declared that, quote, precision medicine has the potential to completely transform healthcare delivery in this country. Well, I happen to agree. Today, as part of our special series, Spotlight on Precision Medicine, we're going to take a close look at biomarker tests that are being used to identify which people may benefit from various treatments. We have two fantastic guests with us who are going to help us understand how these innovative treatments work and the tests that are now available to help doctors plan for the best care for each patient. First, let me introduce to you Dr. Stephen Isakoff. Dr. Isakoff is Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Associate Director for Breast Cancer Clinical Research at Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center. The overall goal of his research is to develop novel approaches to the treatment of breast cancer. He is actively engaged in scientifically driven clinical research studies with a primary focus in triple negative breast cancer as well as targeted therapies. Welcome to the show, Dr. Isakoff. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Also joining us is Dr. Lawrence Weiss. He is the Chief Scientific Officer at Neogenomics. Dr. Weiss was previously an Assistant Professor of Pathology at Stanford, President of the Medical Staff and Chairman of Pathology at the City of Hope. He is the author of over 500 papers and book chapters, as well as over a dozen books. His laboratory discovered the first molecular evidence linking the Epstein-Barr virus with Hodgkin's lymphoma. He has won numerous awards, including the Benjamin uh, Benjamin Castleman, Arthur Purdy Stout, and the United States Canadian. Academy of Pathology Young Investigator Award and has delivered more than 250 national and international talks in pathology. Dr. Weiss is on the editorial board of 10 scientific journals and is a past president of the Los Angeles Society of Pathologists. And just for disclosure, I'll just add that Neo uh, Genomics is a financial supporter of the cancer support community. Thank you for being with us today, Dr. Weiss. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, we're going to take a really deep dive today, learning everything we can in the next hour about biomarker testing and its role in precision medicine for cancer care. But before we get started, Dr. Isakoff, can you share with us how the growing availability of these tests broadly has impacted your work as an oncologist? Sure. It's actually been an a, uh, incredibly um, exciting time to be an oncologist because the field is changing so rapidly. Um, 
in breast cancer, traditionally, we've had, uh, some of us like to say, we've actually had the first biomarkers in, in cancer um, in terms of our use of things like the estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor, which we can talk more about. Um, and that was really the first glimpse of being able to target a drug um, directly to uh, a patient um, using, um, in the broadest sense, a targeted therapy. Um, but more recently, we've seen uh, really with the explosion of um, genetic information in the tumor, um, a whole bunch of new uh, um, biomarkers that are enabling us to really treat patients in a more specific way. And so uh, increasingly now, we're sending tumors off to be tested to understand their genetic and molecular profile. Um, it's impacting how we make decisions about whether to give chemotherapy. It's impacting our decisions about which targeted therapies to use. Um, we are using these um, primarily in the advanced setting, and we're increasingly now uh, using different um, biomarkers um, in the early stage setting to make these decisions. So really across the board from top to bottom, early stage, late stage, um, these tests are really changing the way we approach um, treating patients and, uh, and hopefully improving their outcomes. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, we know that any conversation about precision medicine and biomarkers is going to include lots of scientific terms that can be intimidating, overwhelming for our listeners. So let's walk through some of the important terms and concepts that people need to understand so that they can have a constructive conversation with their medical team uh, about it. And we're going to take it nice and easy for our listeners. So uh, so stay with us here, Dr. Isakoff. Um Let's start with that term, precision medicine. What is precision medicine? What's the goal of this approach? So um, precision medicine is really um, an approach in which we are not just treating patients because they have, for example, breast cancer or lung cancer. It's where we're taking the time and have the ability now to understand the molecular and genetic features specific to that particular cancer. Um, and we are now using treatments that are really, um, in a sense, more precisely directed at the tumor. Um, it's, it's a term that has evolved, um, and, uh, and we can talk more about this, but it's, it's a term that evolved from what we used to call personalized medicine. Um, but most of us in the field um, over the last 10 years or so have really uh, become more specific in a way, more precise, and now call it precision medicine. And, um, and the idea is, for example, with traditional chemotherapy, um, we are treating, for example, just breast cancer, but there's nothing specific and nothing really precise about the way we're doing that that allows us to treat that particular type of breast cancer. And what precision medicine has really done is allowed us to now uh, think about targets in the cancer where it's not just breast cancer, but now it's a specific subset of breast cancer or a specific type of lung cancer where we understand the genetic alterations causing that cancer and we have targets that can precisely target that. So I think when we talk um, about precision medicine, that's in, in large part uh, what we're referring to. Um, terrific, terrific. Um, let me bring Dr. Weiss into the conversation here. Dr. Weiss, most of our listeners will be familiar with Dr. Isakoff's role as an oncologist because oncologists interact directly with cancer patients and, and coordinate their care. Um, and although pathologists are a key part of the cancer care team, most patients never directly interact with them. Dr. Weiss, what is a pathologist and what is their role on the oncology team? 
So a pathologist, let me stress, is an MD, a practicing physician, but you're right, he doesn't have much, he or she does not have much contact with patients. Uh, the pathologist's role is most importantly to diagnose tissues that are taken out at the time of surgery or any other procedure where tissue is removed. And now in this age of precision medicine, he also is responsible for coordinating what studies are done and how they're performed on that tissue is left over um, for various biomarkers. Terrific, terrific. So let's break that down a little, Dr. Weiss. What is a biomarker? What is biomarker testing? And how does biomarker testing relate to this term we're discussing, precision medicine? So a biomarker in its simplest sense is any measurable indicator of some biological state and condition. But as we're using it in terms of precision medicine, um, it can be a diagnostic marker, a prognostic marker, a predictive marker, hereditary marker, or a marker of response to therapy. But the most important markers for precision medicine are predictive markers because they will determine um, what drugs might, we, might be most useful for the particular tumor that the patient might have. Terrific, terrific. I want to keep breaking this down for our listeners in this opening segment that we have here, gentlemen. So let's go back a little bit to middle, middle school science class, uh, get refreshed on some of these important scientific terms that will help us understand uh, biomarker testing and precision medicine. And we're really going to take a deeper dive. Um, Dr. Weiss, can you explain, just give us a, just a quick background, DNA, genes, chromosomes. I understand that many biomarkers are tests done on them. So remember that everyone has 46 chromosomes in their um, nucleus of, of all their cells, including those famous X and Y chromosomes, which determine um, the, the sex. Um, and chromosomes carry the, informa- the genetic information, um, which determine inheritance, and also what determines what your proteins will do. The backbone of chromosomes is composed of DNA, we don't know what most of that DNA does still in this day and age, but we know that about 1% um, are, are the genes. There are about twenty to 30,000 genes, and they determine um, for the coding of proteins. So the specific proteins that you express will determine a lot of things about yourself and are deranged in cancers. And just quickly, you mentioned... Uh, proteins, Dr. Weiss. Tell us about uh, proteins and molecules. Well, proteins are the building blocks of, of structure and function. They're the receptors on cells. They're the enzymes that do various things. Uh, they're the structure of cells. Um, proteins can be studied by something called immunohistochemistry, where localization can actually be seen. Uh, molecules not so much, so important. They're the building block of atoms. They're the the, the, the smallest unit of, of molecular structure. But if molecules are not important, molecular studies are. And we refer to molecular studies. We're talking about uh, studies of the DNA or also the RNA, which is another component of uh, nucleic acids. Okay. Okay. Dr. Isaacoff, we're running up into our, uh, our break here. We've got about a, about a minute here. but um, uh, So we understand that biomarkers are sometimes testing a cancer tumor's mutations or inherited mutations. Can you just quickly tell us about those two terms? 
Sure. So, um, in short, an inherited mutation is something that you received, uh, passed on from a parent, either your mother or father, um, and that's something that you have the potential to pass on to your children. Um, and there are some inherited alterations, such as BRCA1 or 2, that can occur in patients where they inherited one faulty gene from a parent, and then a second gene uh, alteration happens, and that leads to the cancer. On the other hand, there can be mutations that happen only in the tumor, and these are what we call somatic mutations. And these are not mutations that one inherited from either a parent, and they are not mutations that you can pass along to a child. They are mutations that occurred solely in the tumor and are likely in some part responsible in many cases for developing that cancer. And it's important to know that because identifying those what we call somatic or tumor mutations might open up the possibility to think about new treatment approaches. Gentlemen, we have covered a lot of ground uh, before heading into our first commercial break, and we'll have a chance to kind of dive in a little deeper and uh, refresh on some of these. When we come back, we're going to take a closer look at biomarker testing itself and how it's helping doctors make cancer treatment recommendations and decisions. Um, The cancer support community is proud to create and bring you this important series on precision medicine, and we appreciate the educational grant from Neogenomics to allow us to do so. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Don't go away. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the AZI Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo. With us today are oncologist Dr. Stephen Isakoff and pathologist Dr. Lawrence Weiss. Today's episode is part of our special series, Spotlight on Precision Medicine, and is focusing on biomarker testing. Dr. Weiss, before we continue, I also want to clear up some possible confusion. Uh, there are a lot of different terms used that seem to refer to the same thing. Uh, we hear about biomarker testing, molecular testing, gene profiling, tumor marker profiling, genetic sequencing. Are these terms interchangeable? Do we have to kind of break down the definition of these for patients? How can you help us understand uh, this sort of you know, alphabet soup of terminology here? Well, they are very similar terms. They're not quite identical, but they're pretty similar. Biomarker testing can be any sort of testing. It can be looking at proteins. It can be looking at chromosomes. It could be looking at DNA or RNA. Um, same thing for tumor testing or tumor marker testing. We're looking at biomarkers specifically related to tumors. Molecular testing, um, gene testing, uh, genetic testing are very similar and are studies that are generally performed on nucleic acids, whether DNA or RNA. Gene sequencing or gene profiling are the most specific uh, studies where we're actually looking the sequence of bases in a particular stretch of DNA, and it can be quite large, and that's why it's called gene profiling. So they're very similar, but uh, not quite identical terms. Okay, okay. So... So, Dr. Weiss, walk us through the biomarker testing process. What kinds of samples are collected from the patient? How are they collected? What can the patient expect to um, experience? So, first of all, when any biopsy or resection is done at surgery or any other procedure, that tissue is never thrown out. It's always analyzed by a pathologist. But let's say um, the pathologist... um, and how the, the pathologist analyzes it, he'll fix the tissue in formalin. He'll embed it in a paraffin wax so it can be easily sectioned into thin slices, and they'll examine it under the microscope. And if it's cancer, well, they'll want to go on to do additional testing. And there are a lot of different types of testing. We talked about immunohistochemistry, where we can look at the distribution of proteins on the tumor that can help for classification, and some biomarkers are uh, immunohistochemical. Um, we can paint the chromosomes different colors and try to see if there are gross abnormalities in the chromosomes, or we can subject them to more specific, uh, for example, um, uh, genetic sequencing, where we're looking for specific mutations in specific genes. Do all tumors get that? No, and a pathologist will determine what type of analysis is important in different tumors uh, with collaboration with the oncologists and other care providers. And what if there's not a solid tumor that we're looking at, Dr. Weiss? If it's a liquid tumor, like a leukemia, we'll be doing mm-hmm. the same analysis on blood uh, or even bone marrow when that's obtained. We'll smear the blood on the slide so we can look at the cells, and then we can do some of the same uh, technology, such as 
uh, fish or molecular studies on those liquid specimens as well. And and Dr. Weiss, what can you tell us about some of the cancers um, for which biomarkers have been identified? Because you said it's not all, all kinds of cancers at this point. So it's all the major cancers for sure. So we talked about estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor in breast cancer, supplemented in the 1990s by HER2. Probably the, the one solid tumor which has the most uh, biomarkers right now is lung, where at least 8 to 10 are recommended to be tested, and, and, and many oncologists believe that we have to do many, many more than that. Stomach cancer, melanoma, colon cancer. As I said, all the common solid tumors have very important biomarkers that need to be tested. And talking about leukemia and lymphoma, those have a different set of biomarkers that's important. For leukemia, subclassification of leukemia is very important. Biomarkers more more important in the diagnosis, but they're also predictive markers in, in leukemias as well. So, Dr. Isakoff, let's talk for a minute about what happens from, from, from your side, the oncologist side, and how you use information revealed by the testing. Can you tell us about the the diagnostic, the prognostic, and the clinical uses of biomarkers and how you talk about that with your patients? Sure. So I think the, the biggest impact that biomarkers have for us in oncology is probably in the prognostic and the clinical use. Um, and Dr. Weiss uh, uh, alluded to this before, um, the, this term predictive. So from the prognostic side, um, what that really is telling us is something about the inherent biology of the cancer. And so there may be certain biomarkers that when they are present, they tell us that this cancer is likely to behave in a particular way by its natural history. And so, for example, something like in breast cancer, having the HER2 gene overexpressed, we know that that means, in general, that type of cancer is a more aggressive type of cancer. The clinical utility of that, which is also called the predictive uh, biomarker, means not only does it tell us about the biology of that cancer, that it's more aggressive, but it also tells us how to treat it. And it tells us that by using targeted therapy against, for in this example, HER2, um, we can actually have very effective treatment about that. Um, so that's, uh, for example, um, just one way in which we're using that um, in breast cancer. Um, but this is, this is occurring across the board in, in, in uh, a number of cancers in both solid and liquid tumors um, to really help us understand both what is the natural history and risk of the behavior of this cancer, but more importantly for the clinical use, um, what specific drugs um, do we want to use that, that targets those biomarkers? And, and can you just talk, talk a little bit sort of broadly about how you determine what tests should be done on a patient's tumor? I know that there are many different tests available, different panels of tests available. So how do you sort of think about, you know, what tests should be done on a particular patient's tumor? Sure. So it, it certainly depends on the situation. Um, and I would say, um, particularly in breast cancer and in some other cancers, all, all of the specimens that we get will get tested for sort of the, the old standards, which are now estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, and HER2. That is fundamental to uh, treatment of breast cancer, and so all tumor specimens um, and all biopsies, we request that. Um, but then the question of how to go the next step really depends on the clinical circumstance. And so, for example, in the early stage setting, 
um, where we might need to make a decision about whether a patient just diagnosed with breast cancer needs to receive chemotherapy or not, we might send for a, a specific uh, molecular profiling test that will tell us um, uh, the expression of a certain number of genes, and, and that will give us predictive ability to understand whether chemotherapy is likely to be helpful for that individual patient. In the advanced setting, um, we are now increasingly um, sending for uh, sequencing testing, and this can be done either on the tumor itself, where we send a piece of the tumor off uh, to do genetic sequencing, or it can actually be done by sending off uh, the blood, where we can uh, identify pieces of the tumor's DNA in the blood, and we're identifying specific genetic alterations that might also then tell us what uh, what drugs um, might be a appropriate uh, for that, that particular patient, and increasingly, um, drugs are being approved um, with uh, those specific biomarkers uh, um, in mind. So, so I understand, Dr. Isakoff, that many of the, the newest therapies you know, target a specific protein or other biomarker to treat cancer. So just tell our listeners, what is immunotherapy, and, and maybe share some examples of how um, you know, immunotherapy treatments are, are used based on the results of a specific biomarker test. Sure. So this has actually been very exciting in breast cancer because we just had, uh, we were a little late to the game. I think immunotherapy has been approved in a number of solid tumors, but just earlier this year, we had our first drug approved in breast cancer and it was approved uh, in patients who do express a particular biomarker. And so in general, um, uh, the way um, immunotherapy is approved in breast cancer is we test for a marker called PDL1, um, which is a marker that's involved in helping cells communicate with the immune system. Um, and if that marker is present on the immune cells present in a tumor, then it's been shown that a particular type of breast cancer has a higher chance of responding um, to immunotherapy. Um, I should explain, if we have a moment, what immunotherapy is. Mm-hmm. Um, um, immunotherapy is, in, in the most simple sense, it's really therapy that is allowing your own body's immune system to identify and fight off cancer in your own body. And so uh, uh, what it does is um, by giving one of these drugs called a checkpoint inhibitor, which in general is what we uh, often mean when we talk about immunotherapy, um, what that does is it allows the immune system, which is normally... Uh, protected from attacking cancer. The cancer is very smart and makes this molecule on its surface called PDL1 that sort of protects it from the immune system. And by giving one of these immunotherapy drugs, you now uh, sort of take the brakes off the immune system and let it find and identify the cancer in your body and go ahead and attack it. And, and, and just a quick question before we go to our break here, Dr. Isakoff. So you and Dr. Weiss obviously both come from, from large academic settings, you know, academic backgrounds, but we know that 80% of cancer patients are treated in the community. Are these tests widely available throughout the community setting or are they more available in the academic setting just quickly? So increasingly, they they are available um, uh, throughout the community, uh, regardless of where you are, in large part because um, there are private companies that you can send off a piece of tumor tissue to around the country. Mm-hmm. And increasingly now with the blood-based biomarker testing, uh, it's as simple as sending off a, a piece of blood. The challenge becomes in understanding the results, and I think mm-hmm. that that comes with practice. Uh, got it. Got it. Uh, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. When we come back, 
We're going to take a closer look at uh, some breakthrough cancer treatments and the continued evolution uh, of biomarker testing and of precision medicine. And we're proud to create and bring you this important series uh, on precision medicine. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Don't go away. We'll be right back. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at CancerSupportCommunity.org. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help support from cancer survivors links to research and clinical trials help with finances and access to care all behind you break away from cancer created by amgen to empower cancer patients the cancer support community is proud to be a partner of breakaway from cancer hi i'm nick nicolaitis president and ceo of morphotech and we're delighted to be a sponsor of cancer support communities frankly speaking about cancer series morphotech and its parent company azi are committed to human health care and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process we salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day opinions options answers you're listening to voice america health and wellness You are listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo. We've been learning a lot about precision medicine and biomarker testing today with pathologist Dr. Lawrence Weiss and oncologist Dr. Stephen Isakoff. It's been really exciting to witness new treatments like targeted therapies and immunotherapies move from clinical trials to FDA approved and as a result available to more patients. Since 2011, the FDA has approved seven immunotherapy drugs uh, to use in over a dozen cancers. Uh, Dr. Isakoff, Dr. Weiss, I want to take a little uh, bit of time to have a closer look at, at two treatments. First off, let's talk about an exciting development for patients diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. We started to touch on this a little bit. Um, for the first time, the FDA has approved the use of an immunotherapy to be used in conjunction with chemotherapy in the treatment of people diagnosed with metastatic triple negative breast cancer, as well as the biomarker test that identifies patients who could benefit uh, from this uh, course of treatment. And we started to touch on this, but for those just joining Dr. Isakoff, let's um, start by uh, first explaining to um, our listeners uh, what is um, metastatic triple negative breast cancer and the significance of this new FDA approval. 
Sure. So uh, breast cancer in general is broken up into three large categories. Uh, the first category is what we call hormone or estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, and that makes up about two-thirds of the breast cancers that we see. Um, and then about a third uh, or about 20% is made up of something called HER2 positive breast cancer. Um, that's where one of the biomarkers we talked about earlier called HER2 is overexpressed. Um, but then the third subtype is what we call triple negative breast cancer, and it's so-called because it is missing those three biomarkers that we've talked about, the estrogen receptor, progesterone, and HER2. And by missing those three markers, um, that's where the term triple negative comes from. And in essence, um, it's, a, it's a type of breast cancer for which it's defined by its missing three biomarkers. Um, and the recent uh, FDA approval that you're referring to is a, one of the immunotherapy drugs called atezolizumab. And it was shown in advanced triple negative breast cancer, which means uh, the cancer has spread beyond the breast and is in another part of the body. Um, in patients with advanced or metastatic triple negative breast cancer who have this biomarker that we were talking about previously called PDL1 expressed on the immune cells in the tumor, they seem to get additional benefit and have both higher responses and longer duration of responses when treated with one of these immunotherapy drugs, atezolizumab, in combination with a chemotherapy. Um, so this was really very exciting. Um, this was uh, essentially the first drug approved for triple negative breast cancer specifically, um, but also using a biomarker in triple negative breast cancer that we haven't really had uh, in that disease before. So, Dr. Eskoff, what is the testing that a patient needs to undergo to determine if they have triple negative breast cancer or, or some of these other results that you're describing? Sure. So, um, so to determine if they have triple negative breast cancer, this should be done in all patients. Um, mm -hmm. At the time of any breast uh, breast cancer diagnosis, they should have, um, and this is where Dr. Weiss and the our collaborating pathologists come in, um, they will stain all of the tumors for the estrogen and progesterone uh, markers, as well as for HER2, um, and they will give that report back standardly, and that's, that's, uh, that's on every case. Um, in particular, for um, this new uh, immunotherapy drug, uh, that's something that we'll request our pathologist to test for um, essentially now in all cases of advanced breast cancer, where we will specifically ask them, can you do this PDL1 testing for us? Um, sometimes they'll send it out to um, a commercial testing lab to do it, um, but they'll give us that result, and that will tell us uh, uh, whether or not our patient is a candidate for one of these immunotherapy drugs. So, Dr. Weiss, can you can you drill down on that a little bit more um, for our listeners? I just want folks to un understand the advance that we're talking about here and how it's sort of changing the testing that should be done for these um, triple negative breast cancer patients. So, again, as simple language as possible, tell us a little bit more about the FDA-approved test that helps to determine if someone with metastatic um, triple negative breast cancer might benefit from immunotherapy. I just want to emphasize for this for our listeners. So as, as we discussed earlier, this is an immunohistochemical test. What we're doing is putting an antibody on a slide to look to see where, whether the PDL1 protein is expressed and if it's expressed, where it's expressed. But it's kind of a tricky test, and not all hospitals can perform this test. That's why many decide to send it out. Um, it's a specific procedure that's outlined very carefully by the FDA, and you have to follow all the steps carefully. It's performed on a special machine. It's performed with a specific antibody called SP142. 
the slides are scored with a very specific scoring system, and you're actually not even evaluating the tumor cells, but you're, inval- you're evaluating certain cells called inflammatory cells around the tumor cells, looking for a, a, a certain uh, level to be achieved. So it sounds like an easy test, but in essence, um, it's a very specialized test. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and just quickly, Dr. Isakoff, in general terms, can you tell our listeners how um, immunotherapy works for these patients when combined with chemotherapy, and 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 how is how is each treatment administered to the patient? Sure. So the immunotherapy is um, is a drug that's called a monoclonal antibody. Um, and so it's given intravenously. Um, unfortunately, it can't be given as a injection subcutaneously, or um, it has to be given intravenously. And it's given together um, uh, at the same time um, with another drug um, called paclitaxel. Um, and the chemotherapy is given weekly, typically for three weeks in a row. So once a week for three weeks in a row, and then a week off. And the immunotherapy drug is given intravenously, generally every other week. Um, so with the first and third um, uh, chemotherapy doses of, of each month, um, it takes a few hours to administer, um, and most patients to the immunotherapy drugs actually tolerate it pretty well, um, but there are uh, a fair number of well-recognized, uh, quite serious but rare um, side effects that we uh, all look for. So in thinking about preparing for the show, um, you know, I was sort of thinking about the fact that historically most cancer treatment options are based on on the type of cancer uh, which the patient is diagnosed with. And so are the FDA approvals really based on that type of cancer. So a treatment will be approved for pancreatic cancer, for lung cancer, for example. But this model is really starting to change. Um, Dr. Weiss, I know two therapies have recently been approved for use on any solid tumor that tests positive for specific biomarkers regardless of the cancer's um, original location or or origin. So, Dr. Weiss, what can testing for these biomarkers reveal about what may be happening inside of a patient's tumor? And tell us about tell us about this shift we're starting to feel in in treatment. Uh, first, I want to emphasize that it really is paradigm changing. That we mm-hmm. don't even need to know the the site of origin. Uh, we just need to know the specific characteristics characteristics of the tumor. And many people call this site agnostic um, therapy, and it really is a paradigm switch. Mm-hmm. And we talk about um, uh, two main therapies. One is um, uh, NTRAC therapy, where we don't care where the tumor comes uh, from, but if it has a certain uh, genetic abner- abnormality called a fusion, um, the therapy will work. And what is a fusion? That's when a part of one gene... Uh, the NTRAC gene is fused to a an- part of another gene that makes the NTRAC um, overactive. And because it's overactive, it drives tumor growth and survival. And that's why um, if you have this fusion, specific therapy against this gene may be useful. The other one is um, um, either MSI or what's called MMR. Um, for a a solid tumor. And what MMR stands for is deficient uh, mixed match repair genes. And when when DNA replicates in a cell, it's really high fidelity. But there's so many different bases 
tens of millions of mistakes are going to occur. So um, there are proteins that correct these mistakes. But if you have a, a mutation in, in one of these genes that forms these proteins, um, the protein may not be expressed, and you may not be able to fix the, um, the problems with the proteins. Uh, so um, what you're going to have is proteins expressing many different antigens. And if, um, if there's a lot of antigens, they may be amenable to immune therapy. So with deficient mix-match repair genes or its manifestation in the DNA as high microsatellite instability or MSI, um, you may well be a candidate for immunotherapy. Got it. Got it. Dr. Isakoff, we've got about a minute till our next break, but what can you add about, about these new treatments and about that paradigm shift concept? Well, I, I agree completely that this really is a paradigm shift, and these two drugs are really the first two drugs that were approved, um, as, as Dr. Weiss said, regardless of the disease or disease agnostic. The, um, uh, the Keytruda is um, very similar um, to the atezolizumab. It hits a slightly different target, but it's the same idea. And uh, that drug um, has approvals in melanoma, lung cancer, bladder cancer, um, gastric cancer, a number of other cancers um, where there were trials done in those specific cancers. But, um, but it also has an approval regardless of the cancer if you have MSI high or, or the mismatch repair. The uh, Vitrocvi, um is, uh, is also... Um, a drug that's been shown to be active in tumors with that N-track fusion, such as sarcoma, salivary gland cancers, thyroid, lung cancer, um, and even a pediatric um, fibrosarcoma. So these are cancers that traditionally didn't really have much to offer, and the discovery of this fusion in those particular cancers has really been quite a game changer for those cancers because it really revealed a molecular underpinning about what's mm-hmm. responsible for at least a subset of, of, of those cancers. Wow. Really, really exciting developments and exciting progress. We've got more to cover uh, in our final segment here. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Um, We're going to take a quick uh, commercial break, but again, more to discuss on this special series on Spotlight on Precision Medicine. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. 
This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts, and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia, Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo from the Cancer Support Community. Today's episode is part of our special series, Spotlight on Precision Medicine. We've been having an incredibly in-depth conversation about biomarker testing with oncologist Dr. Stephen Isakoff and pathologist Dr. Lawrence Weiss. Dr. Isakoff, to help us better uh, have a better understanding of how this all plays out in real life, can you tell us about a case where you used biomarker testing as part of your patient care? And I would also just love a quick minute from you about how you talk about this uh, with your patients so that they can understand it. Sure. Um, it's, it's, uh, I'll take the second part first because it is a complex discussion increasingly um, and uh, we do try and keep it relatively simple and explain to patients um, traditionally we only had kind of general chemotherapy but now we're in a new era and we have targeted therapies um, but they only tend to be active in patients who have a particular alteration or mutation in their tumor and therefore um, I think it's worthwhile to go ahead and, and we should test your tumor or test your blood for an alteration in the tumor. Um, and, uh, and I think most patients um, are pretty uh, enthusiastic about that um, and really embrace the idea of precision medicine. Um, I can tell you about a, a very recent patient. Um, we just had a recent FDA approval of a drug about two months ago called Alpelisib um, in breast cancer that specifically inhibits um, a protein in cancer cells called PI3 kinase. And it specifically, um, and, and it turns out about um, 20 to 30% of hormone positive breast cancers actually have an alteration, um, one of those somatic alterations, meaning not inherited but only in the tumor, in that gene. Um, and this drug was shown in clinical trials to be particularly active um, and effective in patients who carry this genetic alteration. And so uh, just just uh, relatively recently, we um, sent off a piece of the tissue. The patient was on another therapy at the time, and while they were on their other therapy, we sent off a piece of tissue. It came back that she had this alteration in, in a gene called PIK3CA, which is the gene that makes this PI3 kinase protein. And and so uh, she recently had progression or growth of her cancer, and um, and we now.
now ordered uh, or prescribed this new medication for her um, to be used in combination um, with with additional horm- uh, estrogen receptor um, uh, therapy. Um, and so that's a very recent case, and we're doing this uh, more and more now. And I could I could tell you about numerous other cases. Yeah, yeah. I'm just wondering, um, Dr. Isakov. I'm assuming that if a patient is diagnosed with a recurrence of cancer, that they should be retested or if a patient is dealing with metastatic cancer over, you know, hopefully a long, a long period of time, how often should they be tested? And when these new tests become available, should a patient be requesting these new tests? So that's a great and controversial question. Um, what we do know is that the somatic mutations or the mutations that are in tumors is not static. Um, we know that it can change over time. An example being the estrogen receptor itself um, at baseline is almost never found to be uh, mutated or, or altered, but after a patient progresses on prior treatment with a drug like tamoxifen, um, we actually find in about 20 to 30 patients we see uh, a mutation in the estrogen receptor itself. And so um, I do think it's reasonable to test periodically, um, probably not more than once a year, I would say, and ideally it would be with a new sample. You want to try and get a, a fresh biopsy and test that to see if something's changed. Um, and the other, the other point I would briefly make is we also know that although these therapies are offering us new precision medicine options, in general, patients eventually develop resistance to them. And what we don't understand is why do some patients who have this alteration not respond at all, and why do other patients who do respond eventually become resistant? And so mm-hmm. retesting the tumor over time opens up the possibility to begin to understand why does resistance develop and then maybe guide us towards the next uh, uh, type of therapy we should be using. So interesting. So interesting. Um, Dr. Wise, as we get to the end of the show, I know it's not every day that you have the opportunity to speak directly to patients and you have some advice that you want to share about patient, how patients can and should utilize pathology reports. I'm grateful for that because these reports can be bewildering to say the least. And you recommend that patients, first of all, make sure that their pathology report that they receive is actually their report and not someone else's. So how can they do that? And second of all, um, sometimes the report may seem like it's saying that something is inconclusive. And how do they deal with that, which can also be a challenge? So it's simple stuff, but it's very important. Um, Get a copy of the pathology report. Read it to the extent you can. If you can't, um, get your physician to help you interpret the report for you. How do you check it to make sure it's yours? Look for the identifiers. Uh, Check the name. Make sure the name is spelled the way your name is spelled. If it's not, you need to ask. A lot of people in this country have the name John Smith, so look mm-hmm. for other identifiers. Make sure the age is correct. Make sure the age is yours. Any other identifiers, make sure it's yours. Uh, infrequent mistakes um, do happen. The second thing is um, look for the degree of doubt that the pathologist may express. And some people joke uh, that the pathologist's favorite plant is the hedge. Um, sometimes we say things like suggestive of a diagnosis, suspicious <laughs> for a diagnosis, consistent with a diagnosis, can't rule out this diagnosis. Well, if they just say the diagnosis, that's fine. But if they're expressing doubt, um, you should ask your physician to say, what, what has been done to try and resolve this doubt? Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes it's showing it to a colleague. Sometimes it's showing the case to um, a consultant pathologist who may live 
10 miles away or 1,000 miles away. Uh, and sometimes it may be performing diagnostic biomarkers. Now, if it's a difficult case, diagnostic bio- biomarkers will generally be performed. But if it's not a definitive diagnosis where you see diagnostic of or they just put the diagnosis, um, maybe you should ask your physician, well, maybe um, additional biomarkers might help with the diagnosis. So you can contribute to your own um, um, uh, diagnosis yourself if you are vigilant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, good advice. Uh, Dr. Isakoff, we're quickly getting to the end of the show, but um, just what advice do you have for patients about biomarker testing and, and precision medicine? Is what, what questions should they be asking and how should they be interacting with their doctor about this? So I think uh, the advice I would say is this is definitely an evolving field, but in many, if not most cancers now, biomarker testing is becoming more and more routine. Um, So I think it certainly depends on the type of cancer you have, but in breast cancer, it's becoming routine. In lung cancer, it has been routine. In colon cancer, and so I think you want to make sure um, that as you uh, begin to understand with your treating physician and team what your options are, you want to make sure that if there are any biomarkers that should be tested that might guide treatment to that they're being done. Um, and, uh, and I think it, it, it pays to educate yourself um, about these um, things. They're complex yep. in, in, the, in the depth of understanding them, but um, on the surface, they're fairly simple to just ask if there's any other testing that should be done yep. to help guide treatment. Well, you gentlemen are both helping to demystify some of this for us today, so I'm grateful to both of you, Dr. Isakoff and Dr. Weiss, for joining us on the show today and sharing your wealth of knowledge. Um, and it's, it was my pleasure to have you on Frankly Speaking About Cancer. And I just want to remind our listeners at the Cancer Support Community, um, we're certainly proud to create this important series on precision medicine, and we appreciate neogenomic support pr- for providing the grant to allow us to do this. And we have a host of free educational materials and support for people with all cancers that any stage of disease, please visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org or call us at 888-793-9355. And we want to just quickly dedicate this show to our friend Ide Mills, who passed away from lung cancer, but she was got early biomarker testing in lung cancer and lived long enough to have some of the targeted therapies for people with ALK-positive lung cancer. So we dedicate the show to Ide. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. <laughs>